we are taking some time in the course of this year to consider what it means to repent and to be loved. And we're looking at four particular ways or four particular um, characteristics where we need to spend time looking at where we should and need to repent. Last week, we spent time looking at this desire that we have for significance. Is God given desire for significance, but the ways that we seek to fill that, that void for significance in our own strength and in our own power. And I called us to turn from our own will and turn to God, for that is what repentance is. Repentance is not turning from our godlessness to godliness. Repentance is turning from our godlessness to God. So turn from your godless ways of seeking significance in your own strength and turn to God who provides the significance you are looking for. And it is the same today. Today we are looking at the topic of control and the ways that we try to take control. We spent some time confessing. If you would look at our confession of sin, you can see that this idea of control is all written through the confession of sin, which we've already professed today, which we already confessed, I should say, today. And we're going to look at the ways that we seek control in our own strength and we need to, and the call is to repent from the ways that we're trying to control our lives and to turn to God. And so this morning, our, our scripture passage is Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 24. But I, I'll just let you know that that's what we've printed in the bulletin. But the, but the vast majority of this text is going to be verses 1 through 13 and then verses 20 through 23. So if... Excuse me, 24. If you have a Bible, if you have a bulletin, you can follow along. Genesis chapter 3. This sermon is titled, Repent and Be Loved, Particularly of Your Control. Hear the reading of God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you won't die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now skip down with me to verse 20 or skip over to verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. 
Now lest he reached out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away every that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There are three biblical stories that have the same pattern, and I want to share those three stories very briefly. The first story comes from Genesis 12 all the way through chapter 16, and it consists of a man named Abraham. Abraham was promised by God to have children as numerous as the stars, even in his old age. But in his old age, he still didn't have any children. And God didn't seem to be living up to the very word that he had promised to Abraham. So Abraham and his wife decided that they and their maid Hagar would then devise a plan to carry a child. And Hagar, Abraham's servant, ended up giving birth to Abraham's child named Ishmael. This going against God's command that Sarah would be the one whom Abraham's child would come from. And this child of Hagar would become a thorn in the side of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac for a long, long time. The second story I want to mention to you is a story of Moses. Moses, as you remember, was the, the man who helped lead Israel out of Egypt. And they wandered in the, the wilderness for 40 years. And while in the wilderness, the people of Israel began to gr groan for the lack there of water and food. And so God spoke to Moses and said, I will give them water. And I want you to go and strike the rock so that these Israelites might have water in the wilderness. But Moses, frustrated with their lack of faith in trusting God, was angry with the Israelites. And so when he went to the rock, he didn't strike the rock one time as the Lord had said he should do it. He struck it twice. He took matters into his own hand. And as a result, Moses didn't inherit the very promised land that God had said Israel would come. So you have Abraham, you have Moses, now you have Saul, in 1 Samuel 13, we're told that Saul was waiting to enter into battle with the Philistines. He was told that in seven days, the prophet Samuel would come and make a sacrifice before that they could head into the battle with the Philistines. But when the seventh day come, Saul likely saw the Philistine army and grew anxious. They are going to attack us, he must have thought. Samuel's not coming. So he took matters into his own hand, made the sacrifice himself, and as a result, he lost the very crown that was promised to him by God. He refused to wait on the promise of God. Each of these individuals were faced with a difficult situation. But in those difficult circumstances and in those difficult decisions, they took matters into their own hands rather than trusting God. And the result of their actions led to great and negative consequences. The same is true for us today. We can all relate to these individuals because we have all sought control when we have been faced with the difficult circumstances and the challenges of our own life. And we've sought to face these challenges in our own strength and have often failed miserably, often not accomplishing not even our goals, but also experiencing severe consequences for taking matters into our own hands. Perhaps like like many, you have projected yourself into a social setting, giving off this inauthentic way of who you are, only to find that in the end, you have no genuine friends. Maybe you hover over your children so afraid 
that your children are going to get hurt, that you protect them at all costs, but knowing that ultimately this hovering of over children can actually be very damaging to children. <laughs> and that even hovering over them doesn't even keep them from hurt knees or whatever. We try to do whatever we can in our own power to make these difficult circumstances and difficult situations easier and better for ourselves, but as often as the case that backfires against us. Our control and our desire for control bites us in the rear end. In these moments, we demonstrate a lack of faith in God and more of faith in ourselves. We look to ourselves for control rather than God. And if I'm honest with myself, and if you're honest with yourself, this desire for control and trying to, to manage and to deal with every certain circumstance of your life, it's exhausting, is it not? It feels like there's no other way, though. That I am all I got. And all I want to ask you today, is that true? Are you all you got? Are you all you got? Consider Adam and Eve after they broke God's law. Here they find themselves in a difficult circumstance like you, like Abraham, like Moses, and like Saul. They stood there naked and ashamed because they had broken God's law. They didn't like it. They were afraid. And in response to their discomfort, they tried to control the situation by taking leaves and covering up their nakedness. Surely, they thought, this would fix their shame. Surely, this would cover up their fear and insecurity. But once God started walking in the cool of the garden, those loincloths proved to be ineffective. Their control proved to be worthless. Their way of dealing with their shame fell flat on its face. God was there, and now they're afraid. The question bouncing around in their mind and, and in your mind is this. How would God handle their attempt to control the pain and the insecurity? How would God handle my pain, my insecurity, my fears? How would God react to them? This is what's going on in their minds. And I think their assumption is that God would deal with them harshly, not in their favor. And so they hid. And so we run. But is this right? Do we have reason to run from God? Here's what I want you to see. And here's what I want to get into your head. We need to see how God responds to them in their controlling of a situation. Because it's antithetical to how we typically think God reacts to us. God responds to Adam and Eve in a very different way. And his response should indeed astound us. And there's three things that God does to them in this particular context that demonstrates that he's merciful and gracious. He calls out to them. He clothes them. And he chases them. These three gracious actions are the actions of a merciful God. They're actions that should cause us not to look to ourselves, but to look to God. To turn from ourselves and to trust God. To repent of ourselves and to look to God who is merciful and gracious. God acted mercifully and gracious to Adam and Eve. And church, I'm telling you, he does it to you as well. He calls you. He clothes you. He chastens you. And this is incredibly gracious. 
Oh, that we would trust this gracious God, turning from ourselves and trusting him in the midst of our difficulties and circumstances. This is what I want for you today. This is what I want from me. To trust the Lord in the midst of difficulty. To trust the Lord in the midst of our challenging circumstances. We need to study this, though. We need to study God's actions in the garden with these people that we might indeed trust them. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at how he calls us, how he clothes us, and how he chastens us. So that we might trust him, let's study this. First, we have to see that he does indeed call us. You recall, having eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one thing that God had forbidden Adam and Eve to do, Adam and Eve were now tainted. They had broken God's law. They had sinned in their hopes of becoming like God. One would think that God would do immediately what he said would do, that is, that they would die. That Adam and Eve were now diametrically opposed to God and that he would crush them. But this isn't what God does immediately. No, God, in verse 9, calls out to them. He says, where are you? Notice that God doesn't dismiss Adam and Eve. He calls out to them in their ungodly state. And this is a scary moment, but it's also a beautiful picture of a gracious God reaching out to an ungracious and ungodly people. I am confident of this. That the mere fact that you are here today, that God continues to do this for you and I. He calls out to us in our ungodliness. He confronts our sin. He brings to the surface our desire for ungodly control. In fact, we can know he's calling out to us just like he does to Adam and Eve when we do one or two things. We either hide or we blame. Because this is exactly the response of Adam and Eve when God calls out to them, when God calls out to Adam, what does he do? He blames his wife. He says, she gave it to me. I mean, the, the funniest thing about this whole thing is that we often think, oh, Adam was far off and he wasn't dealing with it. No, the text says he was right there. And yet he's like, oh, she gave it to me. Dude, he, you were right there. Like you had every chance to be like, Eve, don't deal with this serpent. We need to leave. This is against God. But you were right there. But you're blaming him. And this is exactly what we do when we sin. When we knowingly sin, one of the things that we do, oh, you know, I did it because I was tired. I did it because I was distracted. I did it because fill in the blank. I, I, we can talk a lot about all of that stuff, but here's what I, when we blame or when we hide, I think what we know is that God is calling out to us in our conscience. When we blame or when we hide, God is calling out to you and I saying, where are you? Look, this is a very gracious thing for all of us to be awakened to the reality that the way we control our life, the way we seek even like a momentary salvation, is in, it's insufficient. That when God calls us out for, for looking at something we shouldn't look at, when God is calling out to us and we either blame or hide, we should know, whoa, this is a good thing. 
God is graciously moving towards my conscience and awakening in me the reality that my ways are insufficient. I'll never forget the day when I heard the call. My mom was in our computer room. This is when we had a computer room. This is in the 90s, okay? Some of you kids have no clue what a computer room is. Now you have iPads. But I heard my mom call out from the computer room, and I knew exactly what she was calling me about. You see, I had previously, earlier in that week, gone to websites or tried to go to websites that I didn't need to be at. And I knew my mom had set up all these blockers so that my eyes couldn't see it. And my eyes didn't see it. But my mom knew, and she knew she had to call out to me and address the sin of my own life. I look at that moment as one of the most gracious moments of my life when my mom called out to me and called me for my sin. It was the very moment that I recognized I'm in sin and the ways that I'm dealing with my life are insufficient. I'm out of control. I need God's grace. Friends, if your conscience pricks you. If you find yourself hiding or blaming, he's calling out to you. And he's calling out to you in grace. Fear not. Because one of the things that I want you to see, and we're gonna look at this in a second, one of the reasons why I know that he's calling you out in grace is because the thing that he does next. He doesn't just call out to Adam and Eve. No, he does something for them that they couldn't do for themselves. He clothes them. He clothes them. And he clothes us. So when we see, and we're going to look at this and study it in a second, when we see the fact that he clothes us, we see that his call to us is indeed a gracious call. It's a call to the end of ourselves. Thanks be to God. Now, he clothes us. Secondly, he clothes us. The clothes that Adam and Eve had fashioned for themselves were certainly insufficient to cover their nakedness and shame. This made it to where they couldn't even face God in their loincloths. They were ashamed for what they had done. But of course, God calls out to them, and in his calling out for them, he provides clothes for them, clothes that were sufficient to cover their shame, clothes that were sufficient to enable them to get on with their life, Clothes that were able to get them away from sufficiency in themselves. Clothes that were able to enable them to be sufficient in God. I mean, what was the difference in the clothes that were made by Adam and Eve and the clothes that God fashioned for them in verses 20 and 21 and 22? We see that the clothes that were fashioned by Adam and Eve were clothes that were fashioned by leaves. But the clothes that were fashioned by God were clothes that were made of an animal skin. Look at the difference between verse 7 and 21. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves coin-loss. They sewed themselves loincloths. You see the self-dependence there? But look, verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Here's what I want you to see. One required blood and the other didn't. And one was from God, and one was from man. 
The one from God was with blood. And here we have a picture of the great sacrificial system that God is establishing for an unholy people to be in the presence of a holy God. For indeed, God said, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But on that day, God provided another way, death in the place of the sinful. And it was that death, that blood, that enabled them to be in the presence of a holy God. God clothed them with the blood of an animal. And this is an important distinction we must make. In this verse, the foreshadowing of the sacrificial system that is so important in the Bible for God's people to be in his presence is the very way that sin is dealt with. It's the way that we can be in the presence of a holy God, not in our own strength, but in God's way. God provides a way for sinful people to be in the presence of a holy God through the shedding of blood. And as Christians, we take this particular passage and we take it all the way to Jesus. And it is he, the one, who pays for all our sins in taking upon himself our sin on the cross. It is him who Hebrews 10 says is the final sacrifice that fully atones for all our sins. Indeed, we look to Jesus and find the shedding of his blood and the giving of his righteousness as the very clothes that is necessary that we might be in the presence of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he became sin, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here we are remembering the prophet Isaiah who said, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Because of Jesus, God has provided us clothing sufficient to cover our shame, and we need not hide. We can live knowing that when God calls to us, he does it for our good, knowing that we can approach the living God with confidence because we are clothed in his righteousness, which has been paid for by his own blood. Friends, if God has done this for us, willingly taking on our sin and paying the price of our sin with his own blood, how will he not lead us out of our difficult circumstances? I mean, the timing might not be perfect. The timing might not be as you want it to be. I mean, we always want relief right now, right here. But we must take, take heart from the Jews who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years it doesn't happen overnight. We must take heart from, the, from when the, the, the pleas of the Israelites came out to God. We are tired of being in bondage to the Egyptians that it took another 40 years for that. So the deliverance of the Israelites into the promised land took 80 years. Sometimes we think it's gonna happen overnight. But here's the thing. We have in the testimony of scripture that the Lord will indeed deliver his people out of their difficult circumstances in time. And we can look to the cross and say, indeed, he will indeed deliver us. So be patient. Trust not yourself. Be not like Moses. Be not like Saul and Abraham who took matters into their own hands and make a mess of it. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. He clothes us 
Let the garments that he clothes you with remind you of the faithfulness of God and how he is merciful and gracious to us. Trust him. So we trust him because he calls out to us. We trust him because he clothes us. But we can trust him in the difficult circumstances because he also chastens us. Now you might be going, what, what does that even mean? We might need a refresher on the word chastening. I think we do. To chasten means to have a restraining or moderating effect. It's an action that moderates a response. And what we see in verses 22 through 24, we see God chastening Adam and Eve by removing them out of the Garden of Eden. This is a chastening act. He says, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Here's a chastening act, getting them out of the garden where they had access to the tree that would give them life. But since their eyes were open that they would know what it would be like to be God, that they know good and evil. God in his grace needed to remove them out of the garden so that they wouldn't have to live in this life dealing with the constant struggle and burden that comes with life. So he says it is good to get them out of life eternal on this world. I got another plan. A year ago, the following headline made rounds in the news circuit. It said, Silicon Valley's quest to live forever. People like Jeff Bezos and Alphabet's Larry Page and Oracle's Larry Ellison, they were finding, these, these super rich individuals were looking at ways at how to make life longer, how to live life longer, because there's this fast emerging field of longevity that's taking place. And they wanted to figure out how do humans cheat death? And indeed, it's an invigorating and, 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 and thought-provoking concept. I think many of us want to live for a while. I think there's no doubt that life is better than death. But I'm sorry, I don't want to be 250 years old, okay? I mean, gravity is going to work. How gracious is it that life this life as we know it will eventually end. That death can also be sweetness to us. We must see that the Lord is doing this for them, for their own good, and for the good of all. The Lord in his kindness chastens us by bringing to our attention our finiteness. I love that we read Psalm 39 today. How providential that we read that psalm, that our life is but a breath. Our life is but a breath. And that, my friends, is a good thing. Because even though we might trust the Lord, we will be trusted to turn our eyes back to ourselves in the midst of this world. And we will face the consequences of trusting ourselves again. The Lord graciously chastens us and moves us out of this life and into the life with him, where we see him face to face. Do you have low-level anxiety? Are you taking medication to deal with your stress? 
This will all come to an end because the Lord has chastened us away from a life, at least in this context that we find ourselves in. Take heart. Take heart. This summer between my junior and senior year of high school, I, I attended this soccer camp in Colorado. I didn't know anyone, and I felt very insecure and alone. But instinctively, I had a solution to fix the very insecurity and loneliness that had overcome me. I would play good soccer, and I would blend into the culture of the group by adopting their language and their values. I thought, with my play and with my personality, I would be one with them. But as the playing started to happen, things didn't go as I'd planned. I was not as good as I thought I was. And so became desperate in the midst of my poor play. So desperate that I did something I never thought was possible. You see, one night we played with the girls, and there were some pretty girls, and I wanted to show off for these pretty girls. And my poor play once again came out. So to grab attention, to make myself known, I shouted this loud and profane word after I made a mistake. Nothing came of it. I didn't get that a boys from it. But to make matters worse, when I shouted, I looked down there, and there was a family walking by the field, a family much like my own, and their faces were in terror and shock. And they just stopped and stared at me. Like, I, I, I don't think the parents did this, but I think the parents did the earmuff thing to them. And I was so embarrassed. I thought that if I could speak like them and be like them, if I was, I, I, I would be accepted. Now, here I am. Not only was I not accepted and still insecure, but I was angry at myself and embarrassed. I continued in this, and I continued in this, and I continued this. I would even lie to be accepted by them. And it was all because of my control to, to satisfy that insecurity and loneliness. Nothing ever came of it. Oh, I wish I would have known what I know now, that there is another way to pursue, that in the midst of my insecurity, loneliness, and shame, that I had a Lord who I could trust, who indeed is merciful and gracious. Oh, that I would have known the story of Genesis 3, of God calling out to Adam and Eve graciously. Oh, that I would have known that the Lord graciously clothed Adam and Eve with his mercy and his kindness, and he met them in their deepest need, clothing them in their shame. Oh, that I would have known that the Lord says there's a time when this will not be. Oh, if I would have trusted him, that camp would have been so much sweeter. It's the same with you. You are going to be faced, maybe even this day, with a difficult circumstance. And you're going to be tempted to either take control yourself, take matters into your own hand. But I tell you this, repent. Trust the Lord. He is merciful and he is gracious. You might not know when he will deliver, but you can know with certainty that your control will only make a greater mess of things. Not so with him. Not so with him. Tis so sweet, we sang, to trust in Jesus. Friends, trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we 
so often turn from you and turn to ourselves, especially when we are faced with difficult circumstances. We do not demonstrate the humility and the trust that is indeed sweet. We trust ourselves. Oh, that we would grow in our dependence on you, that we would increasingly trust you with every aspect of our life, that we might know the sweetness. Grant to us now the gift of repentance that we might trust you because you are indeed gracious and merciful. Amen.